in the book of Numbers, when God's people were uh, complaining and protesting and insinuating all kinds of things, what does God send but fiery serpents amongst them, right? And the people get bitten by these fiery serpents, and then God, as a judgment upon them, and then remember God instructs Moses, instructs Aaron, rather, or Moses, I'm sorry, Moses, to take a, take a, uh, a snake, one of these serpents, put it up on a pole, and remember when the people got bit and they looked to the serpent on the pole, they were spared, right? And Jesus later uses that, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the, in the wilderness, so also the Son of Man must be lifted up, and so on. So Jesus even used that later on as a means of referring to himself. So anyway, but the idea is that these are some sort of fiery creatures. Maybe they were snake-like. We don't know. We think they were angelic uh, spirits. You know, you think of cherubim, seraphim, and so on. And so we, we don't know a lot about these, except, again, the word in Hebrew for fire is seraph. The plural is seraphim, okay? So if you ever hear somebody saying seraphims, you know they probably don't know Hebrew. So seraphim is the, is the plural, okay? So whatever these were, they are there flying around in this, in, 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 around the throne, okay? Now each had, it says here, six wings. Each of these uh, seraphim had six wings. Why do you think, in the presence of God, that even angelic beings would use two of their wings to cover their face and two of their wings to cover their feet and leaving two wings to fly around. Why do you think they would do that? Any idea? Couldn't look at God. Yeah, the, the modesty, they, they are too humbling themselves. And this is, again, the theory. I, I think it's a good one. That they are humbling themselves in the presence of Almighty God. That they, they can't even behold him. They're, they're covering their, their face in humility and covering their feet. And in biblical times, the feet were the lowliest part of the body and the part that got the least amount of honor. So they're covering that in modesty. And with two, they are flying back and forth, okay? So creatures unlike we have ever seen, all right, is what Isaiah is seeing here. And uh, so then verse 3 and one, so that's one of these seraphim, called to another and said, so they're, they're calling back and forth to each other here, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, or Lord of Sabaoth, we sometimes uh, host. That's not Sabbath, that's Sabaoth, that's hosts, multitudes, okay? So why do you think that the holy, 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 why three times, perhaps? We don't know this for sure, but why three times, perhaps? Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And uh, I've certainly always uh, uh, liked that as, as the explanation. The other thing, and maybe it's both and, that in Hebrew, repetition is always used for emphasis. Okay, so, uh, it, and again, it might, it, those aren't mutually exclusive. Uh, it might well be a reference to the triune God and be, at the same time, a repetition for emphasis, okay? So holy, holy, holy is, notice there, uh, Yahweh of the heavenly armies or the heavenly hosts. So he is the commander of all of these. He's above them all, okay? And then going on, the whole earth is full of his glory, well, how is the earth full of the glory of God, when you stop and think about it? How is the earth around us, even today, filled with the glory of God? Just the wonder of his creation. The wonder of his creation, absolutely. You know, uh, you go out at night on a clear night, and you look up and see that incredible panorama in front of us, all, all perfectly in balance, in its, in its orbits and so on, and you, you know, I, I, that's one of, the, one of the arguments for the existence of a God, not telling us about the true God, but that there must be a God out there somewhere. This is all too complex and, and majestic and magnificent just to have sort of happened by chance, by circumstance. So the creation is one. Or think of history. 
and how God has, has uh, reigned and ruled over human history and called a people to himself. And through that people brought forth a savior and uh, by his grace has offered forgiveness and eternal life to all. So and we could go on and on. We talked uh, today here, I don't know if it's being celebrated at many other churches today, but here at St. Paul's we are uh, celebrating Observing Sanctity of Life Sunday. And again, just think of our own bodies, our own creations, how life comes into existence, how God uses a father and a mother to bring a life into existence and then nurtures that life and provides for that life through mom and dad throughout all those years. And then uh, through mom and dad also, hopefully, a baptism takes place, and God, through that, washes away sin and grants eternal life. So, you know, all, we could go on and on and on, enlisting the things for which the glory of God is made known on this earth and is manifest to us each and every day in our lives. So, as is said there, as one of the seraphim is saying, the whole earth is filled with his glory, okay? Now, verse 4, so, and the foundation shook at the voice of him who called. So this seraph, uh, this one seraph who is calling out to the other one, the voice is so powerful that the, the foundation is shaking, okay? Uh, if any of you were in uh, the early service, uh, the 8 o'clock, uh, Dr. Bender went pretty heavy on that one uh, bass note there, and I didn't feel any shaking, but it's probably pretty close. But uh, that's kind of the experience, right? That uh, the seraph, his voice is so powerful, so, uh, you know, with such force that the found you feel the foundation shaking. So how do you think Isaiah's feeling about now? Quaking in his boots, yeah? And we're going to see. And so, um, and the whole house, uh, voice of him called, and the house was filled with smoke. And we're, we, our mind goes to the time when the temple was dedicated, right? And the entire temple, remember, was filled with smoke. God demonstrating his presence there uh, and his glory with his people when the temple was dedicated. And, uh, and now here comes Isaiah. We're done hearing just the account. Isaiah says, woe is me. In Hebrew, it's something like oye, something like that. And it, it pretty much means the way it sounds. <laughs> I'm a goner, you know. I, I, got no, I got no chance here. I got no chance. Why? He says, why, why does he conclude this? For I am lost. And that, that word lost can be um, uh, translated destroyed or undone, you know. Um, I am lost. I am undone. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips. Hmm. Unclean lips. So is Isaiah only talking about the fact that maybe he doesn't speak uh, as he should in front of God? The lips many times reveal what is also in the heart. Right. And, and uh, so Jesus, you know, says in uh, Mark 7, uh, you know, concerning the, the dietary laws at that time, that it's not what goes in a man that makes him unclean, but what comes out of the man that makes him unclean. For from the heart are revealed, and he lists a whole long line of sins. Okay? So what is Isaiah saying here? Woe is me, I am lost, because I am a sinner. It's not just unclean lips, it's unclean everything. And so he is, again realizing here that he is in the presence of Almighty God. And he's realizing what a terrible comparison there is here, the holy, magnificent God and me, Isaiah, the sinner. He's not worthy to stand in that presence and feels he's probably going to be crushed. And then you've got the, the Old Testament, uh, Exodus, I think it's two places, Exodus, but no one has ever seen God, right? At least in, and, and can live, at least in his full majesty, his full glory. Moses only gets to see his backside when he passes on by, right? Because he can't, can't take it full on and survive. Well, that's kind of what, and not only, notice there, uh, Isaiah, it's not only I have unclean lips, 
But notice, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So all of us, you know, all of us, unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, he has seen the majesty of God. So what's he saying here in terms of, in terms of his being in the future a spokesperson for God? He's saying what, in effect? I'm not worthy. I'm not qualified. I can't do it. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I can't do it. And so, and again, that's, that's sort of the natural reaction when you are in the presence of the Holy Almighty God. We, again, are in what, well, let me say this for a little bit later. I'll get another discussion about this a little bit later. Uh, going on here. Um, so, so notice here, God does not leave him here in this state of, of uh, unworthiness and, and so on. Verse 6 now, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that was taken with tongs from the altar. It's probably the altar of incense, we think, where they burned incense to God in, in uh, well, both the tabernacle and later in the temple. And so that's the only place. It could have been the burnt offering altar, but many people think it was probably just the, the altar of incense, where they would offer prayer and incense would be burned as a part of that. And notice there, what happens here? Uh, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And that word for atoned for means is covered over. Uh, it's the same word, or same group of words rather, that's used for the mercy seat in the Old Testament, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. So, first of all, isn't it, this, seem, this seems, may seem at first to be strange to us, but it really shouldn't when we stop and think about it. God uses here, and a seraph, seraph is the, I guess you'd say the vehicle, but, but uses a physical object, a burning coal, to touch Isaiah's lips. And remember Isaiah was saying, I'm a man of unclean lips, but indicating his, obviously, a heart and so on. He uses a physical object like that in contact with Isaiah and says, as a result of that, your sins are forgiven. They're atoned for. They're covered over. Well, gee, where else does God use, uh, connect his promise or promises with a physical thing and deliver forgiveness of sins to us? Anything come to mind? All right, so the sacraments. First of all, baptism. You know, where we're talking water, not fire, but water here. Water, and of course, not just plain water, but water comprehended in, in and used with the command of God, the Word of God. So it's that water. Now, is there anything special about the water? No, just like there's nothing special about these coals. But we see God, again, making his promises connected with something that is physical and is tangible. And you sometimes wonder, was that for our benefit? So that we've got something there that is physical and tangible, and it's not that the water makes it happen. It's not that the coal makes it happen. God makes it happen as a result of connecting his word and promise with whatever it is. Um, I was listening to one of our seminary professors talk about this, and he kind of went out on a little bit of a limb, maybe, but he said, you could almost think of this as a sacramental coal. Yeah, maybe so, right? God brings forgiveness through, again, that physical object to which he makes a connection of his promise. Now, not just baptism. Where else today? Lord's Supper, absolutely. We got physical, tangible things there, bread and wine, to which God attaches, or, or I should say attach, I don't mean a physical uh, attachment like that, but in, with, and under the bread and wine, God also promises us that when we receive that bread and wine, we're also receiving body and blood and, again, forgiveness of our sin, right? Given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. And so we see this happening, again, 
and still happening, it happens in our midst here every Sunday when we have the Lord's Supper. It happens every time we have a baptism, that, we, uh, that God again is coming through promised things, physical things, but with them bringing what he has promised. Okay? In this case for Isaiah, notice there, your guilt is taken away, and that it means literally what it says there. Your guilt has vanished. It's like you, you were guilty, but it's vanished. It's not there anymore. Okay? Or it can mean cleansed also. And again, your sin is atoned for. It is covered. So those coals and this forgiveness that comes through a coal points ahead to atonement that is going to come when the Son of God does come and goes to a cross and sheds blood so that, again, the fulfillment of that atonement comes. Okay? Now, what's Isaiah's reaction? And I, Isaiah now, heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Now, why do you think God, uh, why does it say us there? Who will go for us? Ah, could be another reference to the Trinity, right? And uh, there again, we don't know for sure, but certainly could be. It also could be, could be, and again, this could, could be both of these. It could be also that he's including the seraphim in this as well, so it's plural. But it certainly could be a reference to the triune God. Okay? And notice here, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I, Isaiah said, here am, <laughs> I did it again, here I am, send me. I better not read this lesson next Sunday in church. I'm going to probably do it nine times out of ten. Uh, we're going to sing that hymn, by the way, next Sunday. Here am I, send me, send me. So I'll at least be right once in the morning. But uh, notice the difference in Isaiah here. He goes from somebody who is saying, I'm a goner, to, hey, it be pretty good. I'm going now to send me. I'm going now to do the work of the Lord. And so we see he, he is really a type for all of us, isn't he? That our sins are forgiven, they are atoned for. And what's our next question? What can I do? What can I do in gratitude? Send me, send me. Okay? And you know, there is a, and maybe sometimes we're guilty of this uh, in our preaching, that we talk about, okay, sins are forgiven, and then we jump right away to heaven, and that's where we're going to be. And, isn't, and again, it's obviously great, and, but what are we sometimes, I'll put myself in this, what are we sometimes as preachers forgetting about? The time between now and then, right? There's still a lot to be done here in the Lord's work. And so Isaiah is saying, here am I, send me, you know? And so he is, uh, the, the forgiven sinner is filled with the desire to serve God. Luther would talk about that great weight lifted off his shoulders when he, when he discovered through God's word that the righteous shall live by faith. And now, you know, it's, this uh, freedom is just such a wonderful thing. And I look around, Luther says, and I want to say, uh, now I, I'm free to serve my neighbor, to be God's uh, uh, agent in serving my neighbor and in helping my neighbor. And that's, that's our life now, as people who have been, our sins have been atoned for. Okay? And just a little uh, sneak preview for those of you here at St. Paul's. Next Sunday, we're going to be recognizing all of our volunteers and people who uh, serve in many and numerous ways, not so they can get their name in a bulletin or get their uh, name on a, on a wall or in a newsletter or something like that, but people who week in and week out, uh, many of them, most of them probably, uh, behind the scenes doing humble acts of service. And so we'll be recognizing them uh, next week. We're just going to do this en masse. We, we, we cannot start listing uh, because we surely will not uh, come close to listing all of them. But, uh, you know, I'll just give you a little example, just a small example. When you show up for church on Sunday and the usher hands you a bulletin, did you think that bulletin just fell from the sky? <laughs> yeah, no, no, it did not. Uh, we got people who, you know, uh, first of all, do the, do the wordsmithing and, and the putting that together uh, on a word 
processor on a computer. We've got people who print that off, copy that off. We have people who fold and staple it together. So this is just a small example of, of what I'm talking about. And this is sort of the idea. Send me, send me. Uh, let me, what, I look around, what can I do? You know, so that's the idea. All right? All right, now let's get into the controversial part. I better start moving along here. Uh, verse 9. And he, so this is uh, God, uh, said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Whoa! That's kind of harsh, isn't it? That's kind of a hard thing to read. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, how would you feel? Uh, we don't, well, we got one pastor here anyway, but uh, how would you feel? God calls you and says, you know, you're going to go, here I am, send me, send me. And God then informs you that your whole preaching and prophetic uh, time is going to result in people with hardened hearts who will not repent, who will not turn and be saved. Kind of takes the wind out of your sails, right? But nonetheless, that's exactly what Isaiah is going to do. There's, there's a shred of good news at the end, I'll just tell you, coming up, so don't, don't, don't uh, lose hope here. But God, in effect, is telling Isaiah, this is what is going to happen. You're going to go and preach to a people. Their hearts are going to be hardened. Now, what, what, what do we mean by a hard heart? One that the word of God does not permeate or does not, does not get through. In other words, it kind of bounces off, you might say. It's like a shell kind of bounces off. And that's a phrase used in the Old Testament, synonymous with unbelief and defiant rejection of God and all of his offers of mercy and forgiveness. Okay? So verse 11, you can tell what Isaiah's reaction. Then I said, how long, O Lord? You know, how long is this going to be? That it's going to be like this? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Boy, there's a great call, huh? Now, when is this going to happen? It'll come to fruition in 586 B.C., but it'll, it'll be happening before that. But in 586 B.C., the Babylonians will come and, and absolutely level Jerusalem. The temple will be destroyed and many will be taken off into captivity. And actually, even before that, they had people taken off into captivity. Like in, uh, in uh, uh, 605 B.C., Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, are taken off. So that was a good 20 years before 586. But, so this is actually going to be fulfilled, uh, what, about 120 years from the time, wait, 740 to 586, 100 and, uh, 50 or so years, some odd years afterward, this will actually finally be fulfilled. Uh, and notice there, let's, let's get a shred of good news at the end here. And though a tenth remain in it, a tenth remain in the promised land, it will be burned again <laughs> like a terebinth. A terebinth is a large tree, kind of like, like an oak tree, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled the holy seed is its stump. Do you notice the little shred of hope there at the end? The stump, just the stump of the tree is left, but God says, what's, what's in the stump? The seed, you know, the seed that's going to be planted again and sprout forth again. And this, this will happen. God will bring a faithful remnant back from captivity in Babylon, they will rebuild Jerusalem. They will rebuild the walls. We looked at Nehemiah a few weeks ago. Rebuild the walls. And from that faithful remnant, uh, he will bring forth the Messiah. Okay? Uh, Nehemiah in about 350 or so B.C. And then he will, uh, again, about 350 years later, uh, bring forth the promised Messiah. From that faithful remnant. But boy, look at the judgment and the destruction that's going to come before that. Pretty severe for God's people. Okay? 
So I don't know if you've done a lot of reading in Isaiah, but this is very uh, typical or common in Isaiah. You'll be reading along, and you've got a, a great wheel and woe and terrible destruction, and then you get about 10, 15 verses of some of those beautiful promises of forgiveness and, and God's grace and peace coming. So it's both and. Uh, Isaiah is filled with both uh, terrible law, uh, stinging law, and also some of the most beautiful gospel uh, that you would ever want to hear. All right? All right. I probably went too long on that. Let me stop and take questions, Nancy. Right. Yep. Right. Yeah. It, in English, it comes across as though he is actually doing it, and in a sense, he is in that he is simply preaching that word of God. So, by his very preaching that word, their hearts are going to be hard. And if he were to lessen up or lighten up, maybe their hearts wouldn't be so hard. So, it's kind of a both and that. He, he simply by preaching that word, uh, the true word of God, they are going to reject and they are going to harden their hearts. And so you could say, yeah, well, if he wasn't out there doing that, then those hearts wouldn't be as hardened. But it's not Isaiah's fault, in other words. It's simply a result of his being faithful in preaching that they're made hard or that they are hard. Okay. All right. Anything else? All right. Let's go on to the gospel lesson. And we're going to see a very similar... Maybe not quite as dramatic, but a very similar thing. We're going to look at Luke 5, 1 through 11. And this is the miraculous catch of fish. Okay? So Luke 5. Starting verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. So you get this image that there are crowds of people pressing in on Jesus. They want to hear his teaching. Uh, he has been performing some miracles, and he is, you get the sense he's getting quite a following here, and they're pressing in on him. It's almost a, I don't say a mob scene, but you know, you know how it is. It's almost uncomfortable because they're pressing right up against you, okay? And, uh, uh, you know, I was thinking about this. Uh, we maybe don't crowd or have uh, people... But think of all the people. Look at the people here, right here today, who are here to hear the Word of God. We have people throughout the week in, our, in many of our Bible studies, again, here to hear the Word of God. We've got two other Bible classes going on in, the other, in our ministry building. And so that same thing is happening today, uh, that people are here to hear the Word of God. And we feel very strongly here at St. Paul's and throughout the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, that that's what the people ought to hear, the Word of God, not a pastor or a teacher's opinions about the world or economics or politics. People are here to hear the teaching or hear the Word of God. Now, he was standing by the Lake of Gennesaret. That's just one of the other names for the Sea of Galilee. Okay? It's also called sometimes the Sea of Tiberias. But Gennesaret is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he, Jesus, saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. This had been a normal thing that fishermen, of course, would have done after they're done fishing uh, in the night. They're washing their nets. So getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Now, who is Simon? Peter. Okay, getting in, he's not uh, Peter yet, but he's, he's Simon here, just another name for Peter. Uh, he, Jesus, asked him, Peter, to put out a little from the land. So put out a little, meaning push away from the land, go out there a little bit. Now, why would Jesus do this? Well, get away from the crowds a little bit, you know, take away some of the, the stress of being physically uh, pressed in. But also, if you're out there on the water, you can teach, and a bigger group can actually hear you teaching, right? And so that's what he does. They could see him, and they could hear him. And he, Jesus, sat and taught the people from the boat. The rabbis used to sit at the exact opposite of what we do today. Remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, when I talked, no, last week, it was actually last week, 
I talked about the homecoming, unexpected homecoming of Jesus, and remember he takes the scroll and wraps it up, gives it back to the attendant, and sits down in order to teach. Same thing here, that he's in the boat, he's sitting down now to teach as a rabbi would teach. And, um, and when he had finished speaking, and we don't know what he said, we'd love to know what he said here, what, what did he teach them here, but anyway, when he was done speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. So Jesus wants them uh, to go out into the deep. Uh, again, I am not, a, not an expert on fishing. But uh, what I read was that at this time, and it's probably still the case on the Sea of Galilee, they would uh, usually fish at night. And that it was much more successful. And they didn't have to go down quite so deep with their nets. Okay? This is daytime. And Jesus says, go out into the deep. In other words, into the deeper parts of the Sea of Galilee and let down your nets. Well, why is Peter thinking this is not logical? Number one, it's daytime now when it wouldn't be as, supposedly wouldn't be as good or as, as uh, uh, rewarding. And secondly, what? They've been fishing for all night. And, uh, you know, to use the phrase, the fish aren't biting, you know? Uh, now, they wouldn't use bait. I'll get to this in a second. But... You know, it's, it's just illogical, Jesus, to think we're going to go out here in the day and catch something when we've been out here all night and haven't caught something. But notice what does Peter say? But at your word, I will let down the nets. Boy, isn't that a great statement of faith there, right? This sounds totally illogical to Peter, but he says, but at your word, I will do it. Any things in our world today that sound kind of illogical to us, but at the word of the Lord, we do them? Can you think of any? Anything seem illogical, and yet we don't, we don't understand how it could be, but at the word of God or at the word of Christ, we do them? Communion, Communion baptism, yeah, the sacraments again, right? Uh, seems illogical to us. How could this be? We don't know. But nonetheless, at your word, we do them. And we believe your word and promise, right? Every time we baptize an infant, every time we come forward and receive the Lord's Supper from, uh, from him, uh, we again, uh, at his word, believe and do these things, as he has told us, okay? So I will let down the nets. Verse 6, and when he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. The idea of enclosing the nets, these would be drag nets that they would bring across, they'd let them down, and they had ropes on both sides, and they would drag them along, and finally, when they felt they were full, pull the rope ends, and the ends would come together, and they would have the fish inside there. Like I was saying, they didn't use fishing poles and bait and all that. This was a large large operation, okay? So not only were the nets filled, again, illogically, but they are so filled that they are breaking. They are coming apart. They, Peter, and maybe, you know, we're wondering, is Andrew there or not? Peter uh, certainly uh, and signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. We're going to find out later that these partners were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And notice, uh, it's probably the case that this, you know, that Peter was not, and James and John were not small-time little fisher, you know, one, little one-boat uh, dinghy operation here. They had partners and they had other boats. So at the end of this lesson, when it's going to say that they left it all and followed Jesus, it wasn't probably that they were leaving behind a little, you know, mom-and-pop operation here. This probably was a pretty good-sized fishing operation here, Okay. And so notice they, they signal to their partners. You know, you probably see them, you know, waving to come, come on over and yelling in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Kind of sounds like an echo of Isaiah, right? Woe is me, 
I am a man of unclean lips. What is Peter realizing here at this point about the guy who's in the boat with him? Well, it's a miracle. Yes, it's a miracle. But he's what? He's in the presence of God. Yeah. Notice, I wanted to just point this out. Um, up in verse 5, where it says, And Simon answered, Master. So he hasn't seen this happen yet, and he calls him Master. And this word is actually unique to Luke's gospel. And it simply means, um, well, it's the same word that um, when the, the uh, lepers, when Jesus comes to the lepers and they say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. It's the same kind of word. It doesn't mean, it doesn't have the same idea as Lord. It, it's, a, it's a term of respect, certainly but nothing in the way of God or of a Savior. Now look at after the catch of fish, at the end of verse 8, what does he call him? O Lord. Huh, quite a change in Peter, right? Through that, through that incident. He has now been awakened, and he sees exactly who this is. This is the Lord, not just Master, as he called him before. Verse 9, uh, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So there's where I got that, that these guys are together, uh, James and John. So you've got Peter, James, and John. And uh, we don't, as I say, we don't know if Andrew is there or not. Uh, there's no mention of him, so I don't want to say that he is. But think now, the first disciples who are called Peter, James, and John. And who's always in on the inner circle as the next couple years are going to play out? Who's always in on the inner circle whenever something big is going to happen? Peter, James, and John, right? Who goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? Peter, James, and John. Who does Jesus take further into the Garden of uh, uh, Gethsemane to pray with him? Peter, James, and John. And so there, there are a number, and there are more incidents than that. But these are the first guys who are called. And notice the, the, this is the first interaction, by the way, in the Gospel of Luke that we have recorded where Jesus has interaction with disciples, verbal interaction. And it's primarily Peter who is the one he's interacting with verbally here. But these are the first three guys now who are going to be called to come and follow him. Um, so, and Jesus said, Simon, do not be afraid. So he's almost saying here, uh, fear not. And we hear Jesus say that a number of times, don't we? I mean, when he comes to the disciples after the resurrection and they're, they're locked behind closed doors, we hear that. We hear that repeatedly. From Jesus, fear not. The angels said it to the shepherds out in the field uh, the night of Jesus' birth. From now on, you will be catching men. And that word literally means catching men alive, catching alive people. So what's he saying here? I'm not going to be going around with drag nets and, and uh, swooping up people? Yeah, these missionaries, right? Going to be taking the good news of Jesus. So you're going to be a different kind of fisherman now. No longer with fish, but you're going to be catching alive people, people alive. Okay? So in effect, by saying fear not, he is taking away Peter's, he is almost absolving Peter, you might say at that point, and is giving him an encouragement here as well, or a commissioning. Verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And again, just think about what that meant. They left everything and had followed them. Kind of interesting later on, when, remember when Jesus, this is in Matthew 19, where Jesus meets the rich guy, and uh, the guy asks Jesus the question, what must I do to gain eternal life, right? And Jesus says, you know, he goes through the commandments, uh, actually goes through the second table of the law. You've heard it, what it was said, you should not... Uh, lie, steal, commit adultery, and so on. And, and, the, and the rich young guy says, Master, all these things I've done since my youth. And Jesus, remember, says, you lack one thing. Go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And remember, what does the guy do? 
He sinks down and walks away. And then Jesus says, it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person, rich man, to be saved. And right away, what does Peter remind Jesus of? Master, we've left everything and followed you. In other words, if anybody deserves anything, it's, it's us, right? We left everything and followed you. So I'm not, I'm not saying that this, this is a tremendous sacrifice when you stop and think about it. They did leave everything behind and follow after Jesus. But you think later on, are they kind of thinking, remember, Lord, we did leave everything and follow you. And so Jesus has to tell them a little story, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Read that later in Matthew 20, 1 to 16, I think it is. All right, I'm going to stop here for any questions on this one. Any questions on the gospel reading? You see the similarity here between the two? Both of them, totally unworthy when they realize they're in the sight of God. And Peter, when God's right there in the boat with them. Don? Yeah. That's a great point. Uh, we're, we don't know how many other maybe encounters they had even prior to this where we don't have them recorded in Luke. Just in the Gospel of Luke, this is the first and the first uh, verbiage we have back and forth. But there certainly could have been other encounters for them to just pick up and leave and follow him. That's, that's a good point. Uh, Bill? Yeah, yeah. so the question was, uh, we talked about that word master and uh, used of Jesus. So what did they refer to the rabbis as in that day? Usually it was teacher or rabbi, but teacher was a very, very common one. Which again was, was a term of respect because you were acknowledging that that person uh, was one who was qualified or was able to teach. And uh, many people come up to Jesus and call him that, you know, before they're, they realize he's much more than just a teacher. He is a teacher, certainly, but much more than that. Okay? Other questions or comments? All right, real quickly, we only got a few minutes left. Let's go to the epistle lesson, 1 Corinthians 14, 12b. Well, we're going to do 12a also. Again, no extra charge on this. I don't know why we do this, uh, why the lectionary people do this. It's not like the words at the beginning of 12 are bad. I, I, just don't, I don't understand it. Um, so uh, remember, now Corinth and the, Corinth and the Corinthian church, when you get into chapters 12, 13, and 14, 13 is kind of a nice interlude where Paul talks about love, right? And it's read at many a wedding. But... We've got a congregation in Corinth where they are exercising what are sometimes referred to as the uh, extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit. And by that I mean uh, prophesying, uh, healing, speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues, and so on. And you get the idea that those in Corinth, especially when it came to, it came to speaking in tongues, that they were using that speaking in tongues more to glorify themselves or to set themselves up as people who had a, a very special gift. And it was edifying themselves without edifying the other people who were there. Now, I don't want to get into a big long thing about tongues, but um, this whole notion, if, if any of you have been to a Pentecostal church or been or maybe know someone who's Pentecostal, they talk about speaking in tongues as an uncontrollable uh, power or urge that comes over you. And there's a phrase they will use called glossolalia, which is an uncontrolled speaking of your tongue in sounds that are unintelligible unless you have an interpreter there to interpret whatever this is for the congregation. Now, that's, that, I would just say historically, that is a much more recent interpretation of what the speaking in tongues was. In the Middle Ages, and Luther would be included in this, uh, sp uh, uh, interpreted this as speaking in another known language. Okay? Like, if I were to today, all of a sudden start speaking in French or Spanish or German. Uh, that's the way Luther took it. And that's the way many in the, in the Middle Ages took it. 
sort of similar to what happened at Pentecost, right? All those who were gathered there from all those other regions heard them speaking in their own language, okay? But whatever it was, it could be uh, whichever side you come down on, I guess, on the fence here, the point is they were speaking in this in these tongues, in the spirit, in the spirit, it's called speaking in the spirit, just edifying themselves, not the others. And Paul is saying, remember, we looked a couple weeks ago at the, the analogy or the comparison of the church as a body, right? And the eye cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you, and so on. Uh, or if the hand thinks that because it is not an eye, it is not a part of the body. And Paul says, no, God has arranged all these things. So don't be thinking just of yourself in the body. Be thinking of what, what you offer, what you can do in edifying others in the body. Okay? So let's look at this real quickly. Uh, verse 12, uh, yeah, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 14. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit... Literally, since you are zealots for the manifestation of the Spirit. You can tell they were just glomming onto this, and it was a big attraction for them. Strive to excel in building up the church. Again, if you're going to, use, if you're going to uh, seek after these gifts, don't do it in a way that is only serving you, is only self-serving. Do it in a way that, that builds up the church or edifies the church. Therefore... One who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Why? Why would that be? Not just speaking in tongues, but being able to interpret it so that what? Other people are going to benefit from this, not just yourself. Okay? Um, verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays and my mind is unfruitful. So if I'm praying in this tongue and my spirit is at work and alive, but my mind is disengaged or is unfruitful. Again, no meaning coming through this, and it's not helping anybody else. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. So Paul is saying not just an uncontrolled spirit praying type of thing here, but with my mind so that, again, I might be able to benefit others and give the understanding. Uh, verse 15, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? So see again, it's the idea of this is not, this is not for, for our own benefit, but in the body, it should be for all of us benefiting, okay? And so, uh, verse 16, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, can anyone in the position of an outside... Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I just read that. Verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue, namely only, only to benefit myself, right? Self-centered. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. So, uh, in other words, don't be immature. And you kind of get the idea that that's kind of what was going on there. They were just glomming after speaking in tongues and putting on a big show, glorifying themselves, and he's, he's in effect telling them, grow up. You know, this is not mature behavior in the body of Christ. Then a great line, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. <laughs> so when it, comes to, when it comes to evil, don't be experienced and mature. That's not what we want. But when it comes to, you know, spiritual things, uh, then obviously be mature in your thinking. Okay? All right. We got about a minute and a half left, so I better, uh, I better close down. But uh, that's so we, uh, here next week, I think I'm going to be preaching on the Isaiah 6. It's pretty well where I'm going with it. So if you come next Sunday... Uh, fair warning, that's what you're going to hear. All right, let's close in with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.